Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Alex Kuro. And Alex, today we've got three stories for the listeners, and the first one is on Hurricane Hillary and the impact, or lack thereof, of impact. Yeah, and then after that, I talked to our reporter, Eric, about his story he just did about manufacturing in Las Vegas. And then I talked with our education reporter, Rocio, about her new education newsletter. I am here with reporter Amy Alonzo, our environmental reporter. And Amy, you have gotten to report on the Hurricane Hillary, the big, scary hurricane that turned out to be maybe not as big and scary as people were thinking it would be. Yeah, Hillary was substantial, depending where you were. I think as a northern Nevada-based reporter, it was a lot of bluster <laughs> uh, <laughs> that it kind of turned into some sprinkling and, and showers. But for portions of... Mount Charleston area in Southern California, Death Valley. It was pretty epic. But yeah, I think it was fairly underwhelming for a large portion of the state of Nevada. Yeah, I think like the predictions were worse than ended up happening. But tell me a little bit about Mount Charleston, which I know got hit pretty hard. I saw some pictures of roads being washed out and a lot of rain. Yeah, so there's weather monitoring stations all over Nevada. And They're thinking that based off of some of the preliminary measurements that this could be record-breaking rainfall in the Mount Charleston, Kyle Canyon area, which is on the east side of Mount Charleston, somewhere between six and nine inches. If they hit nine inches, that does break a state record for most precip in that short period of time. I also want to zoom out and just talk about the hurricane in general, because hurricanes, not something you hear about on the West Coast very often. When you think hurricane, you think Florida, Georgia. California does not get hit by hurricanes very often. So this is pretty unprecedented. And by the time it hit, most of California actually had been downgraded, correct? So, yeah, Hillary, as it was forming and when it was off the coast, was categorized as a hurricane. As it made landfall, it continued to go down in severity. A large part has to do with air patterns, temperature of the water, hitting land. And so the category of storm went down as it made its way over the na- mainland, which is why Southern California saw the rope run to the impact. And then as it made its way up the state and continued up even out of Nevada, that the ramifications from the storm kept shrinking. And so, yeah, wh- why did we get a, a hurricane on the out, out here in the West? So tropical storms originate on the equator. And talking to the state climatologist, he was explaining to me that it's heat in the atmosphere that just built up. And He was telling me about with climate change, global warming, however you would like to phrase it, we are seeing rises in ocean temperatures. So you do have in the warmest part of the planet, you do have even increased temperatures. So you have a lot more heat and energy that needs to go somewhere. The storms build up down there, make their way north. This was basically pent up energy coming from the equator that needed to burn itself off. Is this something that the state climatologist said that we can expect more of in the future? Or is this kind of a, a, a once in a lifetime event? It sounds like a little bit of both, depending <laughs> on how old you are. <laughs> OK, yeah. um, a Las Vegas based meteorologist. They said the last major storm to hit in Nevada was, I want to say, 97 Tropical Storm Nora. It had it was not as large as Hillary when it made landfall in Nevada. Hillary was the biggest. But 97, I don't know how old you are exactly, but I was in high school. So I would have seen it. Don't really remember it. 
And going back before that, there was another tropical storm that came up in the 70s. So chances are we'll see another one. The state climatologist did say that he expects with increasing warming that these could become more likely. What are the damages that like we're really going to be dealing with with storms like this? I think big ramifications that a lot of people see is Southern California, the Eastern Sierra, those regions, Death Valley, they just got hit by huge flooding and huge storms a few months ago. And so you have weakened infrastructure that potentially sustained even more damage now. And talking with the Forest Service, they don't know the scope of the damage yet because they hadn't been able to get out there. Roads were muddy. Access was limited and restricted. So I think some of the damage is still yet to come as in some of the more remote areas. But I think a lot of impacts are in more rural communities, places with less infrastructure in place to handle these heavy rainstorms. Yeah, well, it's definitely it's definitely kind of thrown a wrench in what we're used to as a dry summer. But that's kind of the next thing I wanted to get to is that we've had a pretty we had a very wet spring and we've had, you know, a dry summer that's now gotten wet again. So with all of this water, what's the drought look like now? Are we out of the drought? Depending who you ask, I just as a resident of Nevada, I'll say the summer has been spectacular. Fire season, we are almost done with August and we've had very minimal fire activity across California and Nevada. And I think a lot of us are really excited to have some clean air for a second summer in a row. As far as drought conditions go, it's it's a loaded question. The U.S. Drought Monitor looks at conditions, soil moisture, etc., and they monitor that. And going into this summer, the overwhelming majority of California and Nevada were in a moderate to high level of drought. And with such a wet spring and in this storm, most of both states are out of any substantial drought categorization. On the flip side, you can still look at Lake Mead being exceptionally low. It's, I believe, around 40% full right now. And there's a lot of underlying factors that go into drought that aren't just do we have water in the reservoir that we can drink or take a shower with. People in land management, wildfire agencies, they look at things like fuel moisture, soil moisture, trees, how stressed are they, how prone to disease and bark beetle are they. So there's a lot of other factors like that isn't going to be undone by by a wet summer. So I think a lot of those issues still remain to be seen how they play out in the future. There is a forecast for an El Nino season, which initial forecasts say will be wet. So we do have the potential for a second pretty wet winter, which I think a lot of us would be really excited to see. Yeah. A lot more skiing as well as the snowpack, which means that continuation of more precipitation means that if we have a couple years of this, we'll eventually we'll be out of that drought, right? I think we'd need a whole lot more than a couple years. Somebody from the USGS was talking about groundwater pumping and the millions of gallons of groundwater that have been removed from the aquifer. Mm -hmm, Yeah. So we haven't had that bad of a fire season so far. And it looks like it'll probably be a, a, a hopefully a pretty clean air October, November, December. Yeah, for sure. So fire season around the West has gotten extended further into the season the last few years. Fire managers around here, they will say that fire season is now year round. But Typically, if we can make it into October, we're usually, okay, Reno specifically tends to see wildfires in November, Collin Ranch, Pine Haven, et cetera, 
burned around Thanksgiving. But if we can get through October, I would say the state as a whole is, knock on wood, probably in pretty decent shape. All right, cool. Well, you heard that, listeners. Go knock on some wood. And uh, (laughs) Amy will be continuing to report on all of this interesting changes of the climate, as well as our interesting weather patterns and any fires that do happen to crop up, I'm sure Amy will be paying attention to. Amy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. Hi, Eric. How are you this morning? I'm good, Alex. How are you? I am doing great. We just kind of had a hurricane. Nothing really happened here in Reno, but what's going on in Vegas? Yeah, as an East Coaster, I've seen a lot of storms in my day, and I was kind of excited to be in Vegas for the first big storm expected in years. But it didn't really hit me that hard. We don't get hurricanes here, so. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thanks for being on the pod with us this week. So we're going to talk a bit today about a story you did about the manufacturing industry here in Nevada. So real quick, I know that jobs are growing and manufacturing companies want to come and grow here, but what's the issue with that? Yeah, the story I wrote is focusing really on Southern Nevada and manufacturing. And when people think of Southern Nevada, they don't usually think of manufacturing because the hospitality industry really dominates the economy and the growth of the manufacturing industry has mostly been concentrated in the north. But in recent years and in recent months, the growth has actually been faster down south. And that's because of a lot of reasons. Manufacturing companies are increasingly looking to build a presence out near the west coast. And southern Nevada is a pretty appealing option because they have an international airport that has lots of flights to and from continents across the world. And it's also right near Southern California. California is the appealing place for a lot of these companies, but the tax system in Southern Nevada is more appealing. So it's become an increasingly attractive place for companies to land. The only problem is that there's not really a place for companies to land. A lot of the land in the area is not available for development or has already been developed. That's because the federal government controls most of the land, not just in Southern Nevada, but in the state as a whole. And they can't develop that land until the legislation passes in Congress to release that land and the Bureau of Land Management auctions off that land for developers. So it's a long and evolved process. The potential is there. It's just they just cannot develop land in as many places as they want to right now. I was reading in your story about Catherine Cortez Masto and how she's been involved in that. Yeah. So as I mentioned, the main way this could be alleviated is through legislation in Congress. And for years, legislators, parts of uh, members of Nevada's congressional delegation have fought to pass legislation that would conserve millions of acres of land for conservation while also freeing up some of that federal land for development for economic or residential purposes. And Senator Cortez Masto has been at the center of that in recent years to get a Clark County lands bill passed. It hasn't really gone anywhere. Our DC reporter, Gavin Bierenbaum, did a really deep dive into this whole lands issue with a couple of stories published earlier in August. It's stalled and there's no real sign of that trend changing anytime soon. And as far as the economy expanding this, what could that do for jobs and just the economy here in Nevada? Yeah, so economic officials that I talked to 
in Southern Nevada really want to build up sectors that are not as reliant on the hospitality industry. Because as we saw during COVID, the hospitality industry was hit really hard. And when the hospitality industry makes up so much of the area's economy, it makes the area more susceptible to economic downturns if an event such as the pandemic happens. So they want to diversify their economy and build up other sectors so that if a recession happens or if, God forbid, another pandemic happens, they are better prepared for kind of the, their economy is better prepared to withstand that. And so you've, we've definitely talked about what this would do for Nevada, but what are opponents saying? Or I read that environmentalists are not so happy about this. Yeah, so the environmentalists are, have long been opposed to development of public lands. They see it as something that should be preserved and protected and conserved and They worry when talking about Southern Nevada specifically drain the region's water supply, which is already very scant. And they also worry about just the missions that could arise from any kind of development that takes place. So while legislation that would free up public lands does preserve a lot of acres for conservation, they don't know, the environmentalists that I spoke to don't know if that is enough. And they still would be against any kind of legislation because it would involve the development of thousands of acres of land. Is there anything else you want to add? I think the only other thing is just that the data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which kind of attracts job numbers throughout the country, does show that the growth for Southern Nevada manufacturing has actually been higher than the growth in Northern Nevada in recent months. Is that the manufacturing industry still makes up a much bigger proportion of the North's economy just because there are fewer people there, fewer jobs, but it's growing faster down South. So if this land situation um, ever changes, the people I spoke to envision the trends shifting between the North and the South kind of becoming a more manufacturing hub. Not to say that it's going to change anytime soon in the North. They have the Tesla Gigafactory that was a huge enterprise, but it's going to be interesting to see how this progresses over the years. All right. Thank you so much. It has been awesome to hear from you today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, Rocio. How are you today? Hey, doing well. Staying busy. So we are here with you today to talk a bit about this really new thing that you're developing, which is an education newsletter. Yeah, so we decided to launch a K-12 education newsletter. The first edition went out last Tuesday. And so the basic idea of it is that we wanted to supplement a lot of the coverage that we do. So if you're a regular indie reader, you'll know that a lot of our stories go in depth. We always provide a lot of context, but there's just so much going on in K-12. We've got 17 school districts, and then we've got hundreds of charter schools and then uh, private schools and all sorts of stuff in between there. That it's really hard to keep up with everything that's going on with all these different schools and systems. And we just wanted to find a way to, maybe if it's not even a big story, but still recognize that there's cool stuff happening at our schools. The Indie Education newsletter, you'll find that it's got a lot of like small little stories about great things that students, teachers, and schools are doing, like things that are coming up, new resources in the community, and a quick recap of the past week and the education stories that we're following. So in case you miss one story, you can always find it there in the newsletter. We also want to spotlight 
a different school, educator, parent, student every week. So we started by profiling a school bus driver in Churchill County who has been driving buses for 55 years. And I thought that was just so neat because um, there's a huge shortage of bus drivers. And I think that those stories are becoming less and less common. But just 55 years is just amazing. And I definitely wanted to recognize that bus driver's work. And we talked about how she's driven three generations of families. So she'll get the student, that student grows up to be a parent, and then they're eventually a grandparent. So it just warmed my heart to hear those kinds of stories. And those are especially the kinds of stories that we want to keep highlighting in the newsletter. And so we welcome anyone to come and share their ideas with us, subscribe for the newsletter, and just keep following our work. That's awesome. It's kind of personalizing these bigger stories that we're doing so people can be involved in the community. Exactly. And uh, we've already gotten a lot of good feedback already from uh, anything from like state officials to individual people who say that they're appreciating what we're covering so far. But again, it's still a pretty in an early stage. So of course, I always welcome any thoughts and suggestions that anyone has, any story ideas. If they don't make it into a newsletter, they might make it into an next edition or they might even make it into a larger story that we'll include on the main site. So I know that this newsletter comes out on Tuesdays and so does our pod. So today is a Tuesday. Can you maybe highlight one of your favorite little parts of today's newsletter? Like I said, we're trying to cover in the newsletter maybe stories that we wouldn't normally pick up for the main site, especially because it's been so busy this month. But I saw that Washoe County School District, quote unquote, hired its first firearm detection dog. And so we're profiling Astro. He's an adorable dog. So no shortage of adorable doggy pictures will be on the newsletter. And just kind of diving into the need for this resource for students in the school's district in terms of student safety and just trying to keep ahead of any any issues that could crop up later this school year, future school years. Oh, awesome. I'm looking forward to that little cute dog. And how can people sign up? So you can go on our website and there'll be a tab down there that has a list of all the newsletters that you subscribe to. So you can subscribe to India Education and you can subscribe to all the other newsletters that we have out. So it's pretty simple. We'll also post the stories that we cover in the newsletter on the website a little later on Tuesday morning, but definitely be subscribed because that's the best and fastest way that you can just get it directly into your inbox in the morning and not even think about it. I hope that everyone does that because this is really awesome information you're getting out to the community. Before we wrap up here, maybe you can just give us a lowdown on how the beginning of the school year is kind of starting out. Yeah, we covered Cog County School District. We covered the issue of teacher vacancies. There was 1,100 vacancies at the beginning of the school year. And that's a lot of what's driving also the intense contract negotiations that we're seeing from the Clark County School Districts and its Education Association that represents the teachers. And that's been driving a lot of the coverage this month because we've all been waiting to see what's going to happen as the two continue to go back and forth and continue to agree on proposed pay raises for teachers. So we've been talking to teachers, we've been going to protests, we've been going to court hearings as the district launched a lawsuit against the union So a lot of the coverage right now is going to be on following that debate. We have also heard that other school districts have already come to an agreement. So you'll find that in our stories, too, about what's going on in other school districts across the state and how they compare to what we're seeing here in CCSD. That's a lot of the coverage. Um, But on a happier, lighter note, we've also covered new schools that have opened up in, in the CCSD area, a new resource, a bus book bus resource for students. That'll give out free books to students and they're planning to drive that bus all across the CCSD sites and 
So you'll be seeing that soon coming up too. And just recognizing students for their STEM education that schools are providing them and new opportunities for teachers on how they can collaborate better with each other and other students. So lots of good stuff, lots of busy stuff. You've been very busy, I bet. But yeah, I hope everyone is having a great start of the school year. And thank you so much for being here with me today. Yeah, good to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We want to thank Amy Alonzo, Eric Nugaborn, and Rocio Hernandez for being on the show today. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, and Alex Kuro, with additional help from Michelle Rendells. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at theenvyindy.com. Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Alex Kuro. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>